You're listening to the Frio 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 Music Podcast. To the Frio Music Podcast. You are listening to Frio Music. Welcome back to another episode of the Frio Music Podcast. In this episode, the featured artist is Alicia Zaid. Her artist name is spelled I-L-L-E-S-H-A. This episode is really a masterclass in audio production techniques. Not only is she an electronic music producer and creator, she also teaches music production. She shares some of her workflow techniques and optimization strategies to really help her stay in the flow when she's creating music. Hope you enjoy this one. Stay tuned. Alicia, and that is also my stage name, though. Fun fact, although it's hard to tell, that's simply what it is. <laughs> it is spelled a little bit different than your name. Yeah, it's a pun from when I was 14, and it kind of just stuck, so that's what it nice. is. Nice, nice. So you came up with your stage name at age 14. It was actually given to me. I mean, I started out kind of, um, I did a lot of bands and other kinds of music, but I, at the time I was really into freestyling. And I think it was just one of those days where I just dropped a verse and my friend was just like, yeah, that's ill, Alicia. And then it just kind of fused itself together. We were like, oh, this is cool. Nice. Y- years later, I'm a little bit like over it, but you know. <laughs> Let's go backwards, like before 14. When you started creating music, what did you start with? How did you get introduced to music? Well, actually, my family, uh, especially on my father's side, is very, very musical. I have cousins who are professional jazz musicians, classical, all that type of stuff. So I was actually like, I don't want to say pressured, but I was very much encouraged to uh, to do this, but in the classical sort of format. And I took classical piano starting at the age of four. I also did choir and I did all the forms. And, you know, I always loved music, but something about these styles just didn't feel right to me. And, you know, in retrospect, I think I'm just a very free-flowing, unstructured person. And so the rigors of classical theory uh, and even jazz to a certain degree, uh, although I'm appreciating that more now that I'm not being forced into it, it, it was just a little bit confining for me at the time. So it was a good start and I'm super grateful to my parents because, you know, playing piano and all these other skills are really important. But when I was about 12, I kind of was just like, I'm done. I've done piano all the way to great time. Like you said, mom, I'm stopping. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't touch nice. a piano again until I was 18 and went, oh, actually, this is very useful. Oh, nice. Uh, well, that's great. Uh, encouragement from an early age. Even further back, do you recall your first musical memory? 
you know, um, I, I can't confess that I actually remember this, but this is just something I've been told over and over again by my parents is that when I used to wake up from my naps, instead of crying or yelling, I would hum. And at the time, my repertoire was pretty small. It was like Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, Mary Had a Little Lamb, you know, all the classics. But apparently that is what I used to do. And I did, I don't know where this is, but I have actually seen a video of it. So I know that it's true. Oh, nice, nice. So you're making music uh, before you could get out of a crib. Pretty much. That's awesome. After you said grade 10, you stopped on the piano and you picked it back up at 18, you said? Right. Yeah. Well, grade 10 piano is, is not like a school grades as well. You can kind of go through them faster. And I did skip a lot. So when I finished oh, I grade see. 10 piano, I was actually about 12 years old. And then I pretty much just went, I'm buying a bass guitar. I want to play in a punk band. Got into that phase and pretty quickly uh, through that actually got into hip hop and then into the rave scene. Uh, which wow. is kind of an interesting flow, but it, it makes sense sort of when you start to think about like DIY at ethos and underground shows and kind of just one thing leads to another. So, yeah. And so there was no break in there. You just changed instruments, changed genres. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And I think at the time, like punk and anarchy and stuff was probably the furthest thing I could find from classical. So it just kind of made sense for me to go there. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, did you pick up music theory at, at an early age or was that not part of it? So um, it was something I had to do because of piano, uh -huh. but I, I got to say it is the most painful part of music making for me because I play a lot by ear. I have perfect pitch and there's a lot of sort of intuitive aspects to me. So when somebody says, okay, write this out in this formalized system and explain it, I just go, Ugh. so I actually did all this theory and almost willfully forgot it, which, it, you know, at this point, I'm just like, man, I wish I could read music like I used to. But when I went to college for recording, I had to take theory classes and we had a teacher who would just always rather be noodling on guitar. So he would just play Stairway to Heaven solos and we would all just like look at each other's notebooks and kind of crib our way through the course. So unfortunately, I would say that theory is probably my weakest link, but I can hum anything to you by ear or sing it or, you That's know, great. play it in that kind of way. Cool. So uh, let's quickly go through some of the instruments that really call to you that you've, you know, are an important part of who you are. Definitely the piano. And, you know, like I said, I had this love-hate thing for a long time. Um, very typical. Like, it's funny because my mom is not the Asian mom. Like, she's not super disciplined, but she was the Asian mom in the piano playing department, you know. So <laughs> I hated it, and now I kind of love it. And it's still I the way that I express myself. Even when I'm programming drums, at this point, I have all kinds of fancy pads and surfaces and controllers. And so many times I'll just go back to the keyboard because it's just this familiar territory for me, and even for percussion and it just makes more sense. Um, when I was in school band, I played the flute a little bit. And I swear, I had this accident uh, when I was about 20 and, and it cut my face open. And ever since then, I have not been able to make the embouchure, like the, the, the shape that your mouth has yeah. to make. But I love wind instruments. And the thing that I love the most, which I cannot play, are strings. I tried to teach myself the violin. I don't know if you've ever tried to, to teach yourself. I have tried unsuccessfully. It's very painful. So yeah, I, it's I actually sound. <laughs> I couldn't handle listening to myself. And now that's I just I use too. MIDI. Nice, nice. Well, that's awesome. You you play a bunch of different MIDI instruments. Uh, I Tell me if I'm wrong, but is it called a guitar? 
Uh, yeah, so the guitar is kind of every nerdy piano player's dream because we wanted to be as cool as the guitar player shredding on stage, but you can't do that much when you're doing like this. So the guitar gives you this amazing ability for physical movement and expression. And the guitar that I have been using for a long time, the Alesis Vortex, has an accelerometer in the neck. So I can actually assign it to perform uh, effects and other things as I swing it through the air, as I rotate it. So wow. it, it was a really nice kind of physically expressive thing. And, you know, I actually always wanted to play drums, but that was a big no-no. My, my house, my parents were just like, uh-uh, that's not happening. So I think that the guitar just gives me this ability to just, just open up physically on stage. And, yeah. you know, it's different. That's awesome. Uh, so tell me about that accelerometer. I didn't know that that tool or instrument you know, instrument is inside that instrument. Um, so what do you, what do you map it to out of curiosity? Um, you know, one of the things that I, I teach, um, is live performance. And one of the things I teach my students is always like, there's stuff that looks cool. There's stuff that is cool. Um, and it's not always the same thing. And what I learned yeah. about physical movements and effects and stuff is like, you have to make them very obvious. So everything I do is as obvious as the movement, I, the big filter maybe, or a giant delay, you know, there's no subtleties with, with that aspect of it. If I'm, if I'm thrusting my accelerometer, you're going to hear what I'm doing and no matter if you understand it or not. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So obviously you have, you know, you can't just keep swinging it to get that same accelerometer <laughs> reading. Right. Um, so it's, it must be pretty quick, but it like drags out the note or makes something super impactful to the listener. Or the right. Audience. And I usually have sort of multiple modifiers because I don't want to entrust everything to that. Because like you said, if I'm, if I'm counting on a precise angle, it might not go back to normal. So usually the, the movement uh -huh. will, will control the amount, but there will be other, uh, there's a ribbon on the neck, which I can slide up and down. And that's where I'll actually turn the effect on or maybe control the amount of feedback. So I've always got one hand sort of uh, mitigating the effects and my body just throwing stuff around and then my other hand actually playing the notes. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so tell me about some of the other crazy uh, MIDI instruments that you like and have hacked or invented or worked with. Oh my gosh. Well, um, I love hacked instruments. It's something that I, I tr confess that I haven't had as much time. Um, but now that I've, you know, I have access to a lot of like labs and cool things, that's what I want to do. But most recently I had a hacked power glove, like the Nintendo one from the eighties. And that was actually, I have to thank Moldover for being the brains behind that. But I basically took that and just assigned it. Same as the guitar, you know, it has different limited rotating, lifting, all kinds of movements. And I would assign that to different effects on my DJ set. And that was just awesome because again, like it's even DJing is not the most open physical thing. You know, it's a, that's why people do these ridiculous like knob twisting movements because <laughs> that's all they got, you know? Yeah, so yeah. to actually have another axis and, and dimension to express effects and, and do something live. And, you know, my, my wish, I would love to have the Mimu gloves, but they're still pretty expensive. Um, I don't know if you've seen those, but... No, I haven't. Will you say that again? Mimu, um, their Image okay. and Heap um, was basically instrumental in developing them. And they essentially are these really complicated fabric full of sensors. So it's like the power glove literally, but you know, 20 something years past where actually every small articulation, you can, you can do a physical dance for your entire set and control 
any aspect that you want. So I've been thinking, you know, I actually was very close to, you know, pulling the trigger on them. And then this pandemic happened and I was kind of like, well, I don't really know when I'm going to be playing shows regularly again. So the next thing I'm looking into getting is going to be something I think called the wave, which is just a more modest version of it. It's rings on your finger and you can basically tap, rotate, lift and anything for me that incorporates physical movement and allows you to be more expressive is really important. And this is something I learned when I was on tour with Beats Antique. And I don't know if you've ever seen them, but you know, they're the extremely physical band. They have dancers, oh, yeah. they have costumes. And so I was just I was supporting them for the entire tour and feeling very, very like I'm, I'm not usually the one that feels restrained or constrained or anything, but you know, after watching them with their crazy circus stuff and, and actually having people yell out like, Hey, like we want to connect and this and that, I realized that, hey, there's a whole element of theatrics and performance, which I think, you know, has been missing from the scene. And then we overcompensated with these like cake throwing DJs and all this other stuff where it's like, well, we can't figure out enough stuff to do. So let's just like hurl objects at people and pour champagne on each other. And at the same time, the technology has evolved so much that there's a lot of exciting things you can do. You can hack a Kinect camera, you know, most simply, and you can be your own motion-based controller without investing in crazy expensive gloves or anything like that. So the possibilities are endless. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. Well, uh, I saw a tutorial that you posted on Facebook and you kind of uh, behind the scenes on the power glove. And what I found so interesting is that you had put all your fingers to different elements. Um, and I don't want to try and recreate what you did because uh, it's, it's out there on the web if anybody's interested, but it is quite interesting. And uh, I, I do feel like it's the next level of MIDI controllers. You know, MIDI used to be just one zero on off. And then there's the acceleration and the uh, how hard you're hitting it. Um, and now you're incorporating body movements. That's so interesting. Where do you see it going into the future? Because you've been working with this stuff for years. And uh, how do you, how have you seen it evolve and where do you see it going? Well, like I said, definitely the motion capture thing has become more accessible. And I think that, you know, just with computers and hard drives, like now you can get a really huge hard drive for a much cheaper price. And even two years ago, I was paying five times as much for that. So I think that in the same way, all this, you know, VR and AR, I hope anyways, and I think especially now considering the social conditions may become a really big thing. Some friends of mine made this thing called The Wave where you could basically DJ in VR, which is very cool. And I think at the time, people weren't, quite ready for it you know like it was oh this is really cool but we still prefer being out in person dancing at a party with people now that we move into this place where okay well, maybe a long time before we have clubs regularly opening I think that people may be more interested in this because there's been a lot of like streams recently and a lot of them are pretty half-assed if I'm going to be honest you know they're just somebody with a single camera shot and I think that people are going to be looking for more of that club experience without leaving their own home and so as a music technologist or an innovator like there is just so much out there and up until now a lot of people have been too lazy or too busy with other priorities to do it you know and most of the time when I step into a festival backstage I see a bunch of tired overworked people who have been you know on tour catching every late flight staying up to the club and they're just like yeah yeah that sounds cool uh, I don't have any time I just got my USB stick and I'm going to go on and then I'm going to go to the next point so now that we're not really in that space I really think that people or hope 
are going to just go, hey, it's time for me to really like develop something new and try something new. And even myself, I've always been proud of myself for trying something new, but I'm starting to actually experiment with learning Max for Live and learning like a little bit about audiovisual technology because for the first time in my life, I'm not constantly on tour. So I'm really hoping that this extra time and solitude and changing landscape will force people into this arena of who can be the most interesting instead of just who takes the best Instagrams and gets people to the club, which is something that has pissed me off for a really long time. So out of curiosity, because I've been thinking about the VR, AR space for a bit, and I wrote a blog post pretty recently about some of the developments. It's, it's obviously not brand new, but it's still on the forefront of uh, like technology advancements. It's pretty inaccessible price range-wise, and the granularity is increasing, getting better. You know, all the exponential technologies make it uh, much more feasible in the near future. But I wonder, do you suspect that it's going to impact the live music scene? So, pandemic aside, if there are VR option, do you think people are going to get off their couch and go to shows in person? <laughs> I do. I mean, it, you can just see by the reaction of so many people, particularly in the U.S. And it, let's not talk about that. But like, I think that people really miss human connection. So I do think that people are going to come back. And, and even now, like they're desperate. There's there's people who are leading movements for a bars to reopen. And for me, I'm kind of going, really? Like, can't you just buy a bottle of wine and drink at home? But really what it is, is they miss being out face to face with people. So I, don't, I think that humans are always going to crave connection and contact, but I think that we might even be looking at a more hybrid model of things where like maybe at some point there's going to be those people who just go out no matter what, but there might also be people who presented with an option to still attend the same party, but maybe have these extra, you know, augmented cameras and everything on the go. And then the whole night is being streamed to them. Like they probably would do that. Like that is an option for so many people that, you know, personally, there's a lot of times where I'm like, I would love to catch this person set, but I don't feel like, like getting dressed and getting up and or going it's out. It's in a different state or country or uh, exactly. part of the world. So. Yeah, fully. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. And I, so one of my uh, hypothesis is, hypothesis? Yeah, hypotheses. <laughs> one of my hypotheses <laughs> is that uh, I think that in the live in-person music scene, there's going to be AR augmentation that helps uh, supplement and make it more appealing that only if you're there do you get to look at X or Y or a, a wall of art which comes alive um, mm. with uh, you know the help of a cell phone or goggles or whatever. But I, I do think it's such an interesting space and it is yet to really take over, but it's, it's coming. Uh, there's no question about it in my mind. So... Tell me about how you're trying to incorporate visuals into your show. Uh, what are you thinking about and, and how have you done it in the past? Uh, is it just working with a separate VJ or? Exactly. So, I mean, I've always had the limitations because I'm always doing a lot more with my set than a normal DJ. So even on my current performance setup, uh, it's still Tractor and Ableton and hardware and they're all syncing together. So my computer is already kind of straining and like it's, pushing its limits. And that being said, I'm probably about to have to do an upgrade. And usually my thing is when I perform, I use a computer that's much older because generally it's more stable, it's been tested. And in the case of MacBooks, they have real USB ports if you go like a few years back. So that being said, that computer that I've been using is now like, I think it's 2013 or 2014 and it's really wow. starting to 
yeah. you know, there's just no way it would have handled visuals. So um, up in the past, I've worked with a lot of visual artists, but something that I started becoming more aware of was that, you know, there's this other option, which is maybe not even as high CPU, which is like generative visuals, just more abstract, randomized. Uh, and one of my students actually has created a Max for Live patch where you basically just dump in any regular video clip or photo, and it just immediately starts spitting out these like fractal patterns and dynamic stuff. And it's even audio responsive as well. So something like that is actually kind of within my reach if I were to go back into this full-time thing, because the other part about creating visuals, I think it's just the time of like, you know, creating it in itself and rendering it and all that. But for me, that's why I'm really interested in these generative patches because I don't really have to prep other than, you know, the general color scheme and the original source. And I think you can create infinite material that way as well. So that's sort of the first step. Um, once I understand a bit more about programming Max, maybe I'll get a little bit more customized and who knows, um, maybe a two computer setup. But I, th I feel like my setup is always gonna be a little bit complicated to, to have extra room to have a visuals program. So I'd have to have a second computer uh, or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, when you perform live, how much of it is like spontaneous and how much of it is pre-planned? Uh, it's probably about 50-50 and it, it also depends on what kind of set I'm doing. Like if I'm going to a festival and that's usually the kind of setup where I'll bring my guitar, I might have like extra effects and maybe even plan to have like a guest vocalist or a dancer. Those are a lot more planned and that's just because I have a lot more going on and I have to, you know, plan. People don't think about this, but when, when I rehearse or when I jam out, one of the things I'm practicing is actually just kinesthetic movement. Like not just, can I mix this track? That's actually easy for me. It's okay, at this point, I have to play a guitar solo while rapping and changing my effects pedal. And then I have to turn around and do this and are my hands, am I playing Twister at this point? Okay, time to troubleshoot that. So, um, you know, <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think that that part, it makes it really planned. But when I do kind of more loose DJ sets and Trust me, I didn't used to do this. I used to just bring my guitar and bring everything to every club show. And then I started realizing that the booths were up to my nose sometimes because I'm not that tall and there's no point. So now when I go to a club, I would, I would do a more freeform set. And usually in that case, I'll have obviously a crate full of you know new stuff and stuff that I want to play. But the way that I arrange it is totally going to be freeform and adjust. And that being said, I've definitely gotten to a festival with this very specific agenda and gotten 10 minutes in and been like, they are not feeling this and just changed. So I think that that's a really valuable skill that I've brought with me from all my years of being a DJ, like a vinyl DJ was just, it's so important to be able to adapt. Even if you do like, yeah, okay, if you're doing a big stadium show and you've got a lighting person and people are literally there to see you and they've been waiting for hours, that's totally different. But if you're playing some kind of open format festival and there's a lot of people and everything's going on, you better be able to adapt because sometimes like this is just not right. Sometimes you thought, oh, it's the middle of the day, people want to chill and what's actually happened is they've been hearing chill music all day and they're dying to get down. So I think that having that intuitive crowd reading back and forth kind of vibe is, is so important. And what really pisses me off is when I see people DJ out of Ableton, like they're not doing anything live with it. They've just got all their tracks warped and they're just flipping the crossfader back and forth. And then it's like, they're still that inflexible. You know, they're, maybe their set runs late. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm out of songs. That's it, I'm done. 
I played my songs in my order and I am finished. <laughs> so that is, that is my greatest sort of fear. And that's why I always keep this very flexible, um, keep my whole collection with me, have a lot of different ways of organizing it because I always want to be able to reach for stuff in the spur of the moment. That's awesome. So one, one kind of natural follow-up question to that is, you know, how do you stay organized with such open-ended possibilities? And how do you, you know, if you do have a guest vocalist, how you make sure that they're cued in and that they know when to jump on stage? Other, for sure, other for sure. I mean, there's that whole like jazz communication thing that plays in here. Like definitely yeah. if I have somebody on stage giving them the nod or just like little hand gestures and stuff. But for my own stuff, I, I do keep really organized for that reason. And the, the thing that requires the most organization is actually just keeping track of all my gear because I have so many adapters and cables and little tiny antennas and of course, proprietary adapters that there is only one of and I'm the only one that has it. And if I forget it, I am damned. So <laughs> I, I've tried a lot of systems. I actually used to keep numbered masking tape on everything and just count, oh, one, two, three, seven, where's five, where's four? Now I think I've been using this setup for long enough that I could actually do it in my sleep. Um, but it is, that is challenging. Like the more little pieces you have, the more points of error you create for yourself. Yeah. And so when you are bringing on a new piece of gear or technology that you are trying to try because you... You seem to be consistently innovating and pushing things forward. Where do you test it out? Do you test it out at home? Do you test it out on a smaller venue? Mm, definitely. Um, it depends kind of what it is. But yeah, for performance stuff, I usually do um, what I call like the stress test. And I will just do the most obnoxious set that you would never want to see where I'm like pushing all my buttons at once, playing the keyboard, triggering the effects, and you're kind of trying to break my own computer. And that's super important because even when you do all that, even when everything's fine, you will set up and the gremlins, the, the, the studio gremlins, the stage gremlins, whatever, they're all, they're all this one Illuminati force of invisible <laughs> creatures that comes and messes you up right at that moment. So I kind of stress test it and then I prepare for the worst anyways. And generally I'll have backup routings. Um, one of the things I do with the way that I wire my set is I usually have my vocal uh, through a processor going out a totally separate input than my computer. Because that way, if my computer crashes, I can still talk, I can still sing. I could even like do a, a totally, and I've done this, like an acapella loop while I reboot my computer. And sometimes people actually end up getting more hyped because one of the things I think people don't realize is that people actually crave a little bit of imperfection. At least most people I know, because if you just go see something note by note sound exactly like it does on the recording, what is the what is the point of leaving your house? A and B is the person lip syncing or like faking it, and that's a sad thing. Is I've seen so many artists that are lip syncing and okay, if you're doing, if you're Janet Jackson and you're doing the Super Bowl or you're doing a crazy dance routine, I get it. But if you're like two guys standing over a seat, one CDJ, you don't need to be lip syncing your lyrics, you know? And, and then I'll see like uh, CDJs with USBs with pre-mixed like mixes and they just play these. And I, I, I've watched the guy stand on the table while the mix mixes itself. You, you were discussing the uh, running your vocals through uh, an external processor. Tell me a little bit about that setup. What's the hardware like? Uh, just out of curiosity. I yeah, so usually bit. I use uh, this uh, vocal processor called the TC Helicon Voice Life Touch 2. 
And it's a really, really cool multi-effects unit. I've been using it for years. I was kind of one of the first like early ambassadors to, so there's a couple videos like on their website uh, of me doing looping and stuff like that. It allows for looping. It allows for different, nine different types of effects like reverbs, delays, modulators, all kinds of things. And it also allows to receive and send MIDI. So I can actually control it remotely through a pre-programmed Ableton messages if I want to. And that's not something I do as much because a lot of my sets are spontaneous. So it would kind of be hard to do all that at the same time. But I do a lot of like interactive, just using my own custom iPad controller to send the unit different messages and turn the effects on and off. So yeah, that's my other central thing is that I have an iPad with Touch OSC, which I don't know if you've used it before. It's like a custom, you can make your own controller. Basically, you can just draw it on your iPad screen. You can draw any fader and button and then you can set it up. And that's, wow. something, that's something I chose because I was using so many different programs and boxes that there was just no commercial controller that had all the knobs and buttons and could route to all the things that I needed. So I made my own. That's awesome. All right. So I think that... Uh kind of ties in nicely. I wanted to bring up what you do for work uh, outside of performance. You are a music production teacher. Yeah, that's something new, actually. I mean, up until this last year, I had not done anything uh, seriously other than be a touring artist. And teaching is is kind of something that I've always, it, it's it's like a reluctant passion in a way. And I think I had these really harmful ideas that people have about teaching, you know, like people say that stupid, like those who can't do teach and like, there's this big perception in my industry that like, it's like, oh yeah, like if, you're, if you can't be an artist, you know, you can go like teach at some stupid school. And I didn't look down on it that much, but I always thought that I would be touring on touring and touring. And then one day I'd be like, okay, I'm too tired. Now I'm going to go teach. And what I didn't realize um, is how really rewarding it is like and i've done it one-on-one -on -one and i i run you know this free music production community but it's different when people are really committed to mentoring with you and you can watch them grow over the span of just you know one short year and it's been really amazing to do that and the way that i got into it is my friend uh, who you may know is an artist named Encanti. he's part of a group called zebler and Kanti experience and he's actually been the professor uh, of this particular department, music production, technology, and innovation, teaching Ableton sound design at Berklee College of Music in Valencia for the entirety of the program. He actually came there and developed it. And he was getting a little bit just, he needed a break, you know, he wanted to do touring more. I had seen him on tour, but he was always flying back and forth from Spain. And, it, you know, he'd play like the last set at Lightning in a Bottle and get on a plane to go teach the next morning. So wow. he actually kind of picked me He's, I think he just had his eye on me as somebody who was artistic, but also extremely organized. And that's just a leftover kind of thing. I've always been very, like I put, sometimes if I do a festival set, there may be an Excel spreadsheet for it. <laughs> I keep track of my expenses. And that, that I, honestly, that comes from just, uh, I've been an independent artist since I was 14, right? So I just, I had to keep track of my own stuff and I had to have a budget, a very strict budget at the time because I was so young. And I think I just from, from that, I learned how to do my own taxes and became this person. So I, I think I remember actually, actually working on a spreadsheet for a festival set while I was at a festival with Ben. And I, I, I still think, like, I suspect that that might be the moment where he thought that person could be good to fill in for me. So he told me he wanted to take a sabbatical and I accepted a one-year position. And honestly, it's just been 
the best time. Like there's been other problems that are not related to the job at all, just related to logistics, visas and things like that. But the actual teaching part has just been so amazing. And right now we've been wrapping up the school year and just having all the feedback from the students about how much they've grown and how much I've changed their performance ethos and their production and everything is just really it's really rewarding and it's, it's kind of like what I was always motivated to make music for in the first place was to have a positive effect on people's lives. That's amazing. So let's talk about a little bit what you teach and how you do it because you've got a particular style. I imagine all your students go in with con preconceptions of what they want to do and how they want to do it. Uh, sometimes those might conflict. Oh, um, absolutely. Absolutely. So how, how do you, you know, give people space for individuality and uh, at the same time share what you know and push them to, to move forward in a new way? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, I think that how, what helps for me is being from such a diverse background, you know, like I've never just been an electronic music producer. I'm a hip hop artist. I compose classical music for like movies and score. I do like weird, I also like weird experimental noise. So I think that because I love all these things, I, I really don't introduce that as a bias, if that makes sense. And in fact, I'm always telling people, hey, I know this is an electronic music class, but the definition of that is just music that you make by electronic means. If you want to make a rock album, as long as you show me you can use all the tools in Ableton, love it. You know, anything you want to do. And my, <laughs> my personal agenda is to make the music industry less boring and more community oriented. So those are basically things that I teach in my class. You know, my students will do remixes of each other's projects to follow up on an cool. assignment. Or um, for one of the advanced classes that I developed, I, I sort of forced them into making genres that were very opposite of what I was seeing them make. Because I think that you learn a lot from exploring your opposites and exploring things that you've, you've just already decided you didn't like. You know, it breaks habits and habits are like a really crazy thing, especially in electronic music, because if you're making something repetitive and you're becoming creatively repetitive, it's just it's an endless loop of boring to me. You know, I think that it's really important to learn how to think outside of yourself and look outside your own perspective. And that's also something carried, I think, from just being my, my own cultural and identity and whatnot. Just having, you know, I, I multiracial. There were like ten different languages spoken between my two parents, and wow. I've just, I've just always been brought up to appreciate languages, cultures, music. You know, my dad pretty much exclusively goes to see world music shows. And when I was a kid, I was so annoyed at him. You know, I wanted to go see cool stuff. I didn't want to go see some tribe from Colombia. And now I am exactly the same. You know, um, most recently I did this project in uh, Tribal Gathering, which is a really amazing, unique festival that's done uh, for charity and brings together indigenous tribes from all over the world to teach 
and give workshops and play music. So it's, it's literally a tribal gathering. And last year, I built a studio on site and basically recorded some of these tribes as well as electronic musicians, made an album, actually made a little documentary about it. And I just, I just love having more and more influences because I think that it's too easy to get stale. And so I think that I teach that so strongly that you couldn't really get stuck in one style in my class if you wanted to. I probably wouldn't let you. <laughs> nice. That's amazing. Well, there's so many things that you talked about and I want to kind of touch on them all. Um, definitely want to go back to the tribal gathering, want to dive more into some of your techniques in the teaching realm. But before we get there, I want to go backwards and talk about uh, the influences in your household. You know, what were the languages? Where are your parents from? You are, were you born in Canada? Yeah. So I am a first generation Canadian. Yeah. Okay. So um, my mom is kind of mostly of Chinese descent with a little bit of something we don't know, like Mongolian, Siberian. So my grandpa was a Chinese guy with blue eyes and very tall and everything. So there's some mystery there. And she was raised in Malaysia. And my dad was born in Israel and they were moved to Canada pretty young. So my dad is kind of a essentially Canadian. He also grew up in Montreal. So one of the languages he speaks is French. So <laughs> it was very, very diverse. He also speaks Hebrew, Yiddish. Um, my grandma spoke a little bit of Polish and Russian as well, because that's, that's kind of, we, we come from Poland before that. And then my mom spoke, speaks a few different Chinese dialects as well as a little bit of Malay. But because they didn't speak any of the same languages, they only raised me speaking English, which is Honestly, something I'm lamenting to this day. I did have a Spanish stepmother and she taught me Spanish when I was a kid. And now that I've been teaching in Spain, I've been really, really struggling and working on getting that back because again, I feel so one dimensional speaking only one language, but it's kind of one of those things, you know, when you grow up in North America, it's just like English, why speak anything else? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, what's super interesting to me about music is that, well, I would say that you speak many musical languages, but um, I feel like music connects and bridges over those language barriers. And some of my favorite songs, I don't understand a word of. Uh, it's the sound, it's the feeling, it's the energy behind it. Um, so I want to jump back to the Tribal Gathering. You created a sample pack. Is that Was that from the same event? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, my idea was just obviously like the, the people behind Tribal Gathering are a charity uh, called Geo Paradise. And it's really amazing because in the festival scene, I think there's a lot of like surface level conscious people. You know, they like to say that they're for this and they don't really do anything or like they hold hands at a festival and pat themselves on the back for how much they're contributing to the world and not to be cynical but I feel like if you're if you're making a big show about how awesome you are it kind of is sort of just defeats the point and Geo Paradise is the opposite they raise money all year long and they don't just do it you know as in a benefactor style which I think is one of those weird problems with charity they actually raise money in conjunction with the communities they're helping and they let them dictate what they need. You know, they're not like here, we're giving you this because we're your saviors and this is what you need. They're actually like, Hey, we want to help your community. What do you need right now? And how can we help and step back and let you take the lead on this? So tribal gathering in itself, that's part of it is, you know, they're bringing these tribes together to spread whatever message they want and also to connect with each other and to strengthen each other. You know, a, an elder from Sami in Finland and a shaman from South Africa probably have never met otherwise. So it's 
absolutely amazing to be walking around this festival and just see indigenous people from all over the world alongside your typical party goers, hippies, DJs, and all kinds of stuff. And I mean, I can't take credit for the original idea. A friend of mine named Mike Freer, who is in an awesome band from the UK called Slamboree, they were quite involved with this festival previously. And he had just kind of brought his gear and jammed out. And that was how I met him was, wow, we got a little hut. This is so cool. And and we talked about maybe next year, let's actually do it. Let's, let's officially build a studio. And it turned out that he had a lot of other commitments and he wasn't able to come back. And they said, hey, do you want to do this for this? And I actually said, you know what? I think I can help because after all these years doing demos with companies, I have a really good relationship with certain audio equipment and companies. And I kind of went to them and said, hey, can you give us a discount? Do you have any extra gear? And just for a very low price, I was able to put together this studio, which now belongs to them and lives uh, in their storage in Panama every year. So this was the first year last year uh, that it happened this year. I was unable to go because of all the visa problems I was having. And turns out that the festival started at end of February, which as we all know, is right before all this stuff happened. And you can see there's Vice Magazine documentaries on it. It became the last festival on earth. And the Panama military actually quarantined everybody for an additional several weeks. And keep in mind, the festival's already three weeks long. Wow. So a lot of people were sort of stuck on site and they just got to give it to them. They set up a sort of temporary town. They fed everybody. Everybody kept cleaning up the beach and kind of vice. If you watch the vice thing, it looks much worse than it is because, you know, of course it's sensationalism. They, they interviewed the most annoyed person there and whatnot. And I can tell you that from the people on the ground, they actually had a really good time in the end. You know, they, of course, the, the military stuff was pretty bad. Um, they they kind of sprung it on them and they sort of like turned around buses and took people's passports. And so that was that was a nightmare for sure. But they made the best of it. And I, I think that some of the organizers still might be there even just working on the site. So it's it's wow. a pretty it's been a pretty dramatic experience, that festival. But it's it's absolutely one of the purest and most awesome causes that I've ever been a part of. Of. That sounds amazing. Um, so a, a couple things I want to touch on is you you do so much for the music community. You, you talked about creating a, a studio and it's it's out of your hands now. You've you've uh, passed it on and other people get to use it. Uh, you've created uh, plenty of albums and tracks uh, that are out there for people to enjoy listeners or musicians, but you've also kind of broken it down into samples. And I find that that interesting and not everybody takes that path um, to release um, stems or different elements of of your music. So why did you choose to do, go about it that way? Well, you know, again, as an innovator and a technologist, I'm always looking for different ways to be creative and to enable the creativity of others. And the cool thing about sample packs is a lot of time, somebody who's just starting and maybe they don't say, they don't know a vocalist, they don't know a percussionist, they can, this, this, these sample packs give them the ability to actually safely and legally get the material that they would like to use and can really, really help people. You know, it's definitely put me on the radar and put me in touch with a lot of just like first time producers and people learning how to work with stuff. And at the time, um, it, it was a little bit of an accident. I'd, I'd thought about it for years, but I wasn't necessarily on the forefront of it. But it turns out that uh, Black Octopus, which is a company run by these two 
wonderful guys in Victoria, BC, very close to where I'm from originally. They just happened to be looking for somebody to do another vocal pack. And when I looked into it, I realized that there's not a lot of vocalists that are producers that are doing this. You know, you've got vocalists that say, hey, I'll do a pack and they hire an engineer and they sing a few songs and they give away those acapellas and the phrases and stuff. And then you have producers who don't sing who are doing all kinds of cool things, but they don't sing. So I thought, why not take my voice and take my sort of know-how and my intuition as a producer and make the kind of vocal pack that I would want to produce with. And so it, you know, became, I made uh, wavetables, like waveforms for synthesizers that were sourced from my voice. I made cool. instruments that you can play in, in samplers that are kind of ready to go, like an Ableton and Logix sampler and all that. And there's all kinds of just different tools and different ways of using vocal sources that aren't necessarily just slapping it in there. Um, and again, it kind of goes back to the community, like Splice, uh, when it came out on Splice, we had a remix contest and I had some people from my community on the judging panel on Discord and we had little exercises and challenges. So to me, it's just like, I don't know, I'm kind of addicted. This is where the selfish part comes in. I, I get a really big joy rush off, off watching somebody else discover the joy of creating something. So, you know, when I, when I see someone's eyes light up and they're really enjoying what they made, that makes me so happy because I, I truly feel that that was what saved me when I was like an angsty teenager and I felt like nothing was good enough. At least I could do this really beautiful, cool thing and make something nice and outside of myself. So I think that anything that I can be involved in that brings people closer to that is, is something that I really enjoy. Awesome. So I think that kind of goes back to your teaching, which I wanted to touch on a little bit more. So you, you work with Ableton in, in class, right? Mm -hmm. uh, is there any other tools or like mandatory gear that or software that you use? So, I mean, I've actually, it's funny, like before this, for many years, I was kind of known as like the outlier using Logic. And I actually met my current studio partner because we were like the only two people in our circle that used it. But I've always used Ableton for live performance. And, you know, as I got more into teaching it, I, I started realizing, oh, there's actually like so much cool stuff on the production side too. As far as in the course, um, there's a lot of just synths that we use. If, if people go into sound design, um, Serum is kind of like the basic one that everyone uses. And then I kind of take them through all the different types of synthesis. So we'll use like the FM8 uh, and my favorite synth, which is semi-obscure, maybe part of the reason I like it is a spectral morphing, uh, like harmonic content modulator called Gladiator. And I kind of got everyone in my school into that as well. And we also go through a lot of different techniques, but the crazy thing about Ableton is every version, I, I get, honestly, I get more and more impressed. And they are not paying me. I do not get paid by Ableton. So <laughs> this is honestly just something I discovered on my own was like, wow, they, they've, they've come up with kind of high quality, interesting versions of every kind of new technique that there is. So you can do so much with the built-in stuff. That's awesome. And, and what, I, I don't know, was there any element that made you make the switch to Ableton from Logic? Uh, was it just a general like, oh, you could do this. Oh, you could do that. And um, yeah, so I mean, my view, my view on all DAWs is like there, there's different reasons that, that you can find to use any of them because they do have different strengths. And so 
one thing like that Ableton is still a little bit behind of, which is why I still do use Logic sometimes, is recording. Mm -hmm. um, Logic and, and some other DAWs have a way of like folding up multiple takes. And, you know, yep. if you're any kind of player and you've done loops over and over again, you'll know how much more annoying it is in Ableton where you have to actually have them on separate channels and lay them out and mute and solo them. Whereas Logic and other programs, you can just swipe your cursor and kind of create this, this dynamic comp of any time of any of the layers that you've done. So that is like when I'm still, when I have to do complicated recording, when I'm doing sample packs, um, or if I'm doing score stuff where there's just a lot of complex uh, MIDI and all I'm doing is kind of mixing very simple outputs, I like Logic for that. I would say it's kind of a classic program. But where I really got into Ableton was lightning fast audio editing, glitches, innovative techniques. Ableton makes it very, very fast to set up your own custom effects racks and processes and just really try different ways of doing things. And it's just so set up for you to try it immediately without having to like create something complex or bring in a lot of external plugins. So I've just now noticed that, oh yeah, I'd like to just instantly pull this into a sampler and then I want to like spread it across here and then I want to move 10 effects at once. And that just took me maybe four clicks and I'm done. Now, Logic, interestingly enough, in the latest update, they've really copied a lot of Ableton. It's 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 uncanny, but they still, they still, it's still not quite that same stripped down, just dig your hands in and edit feeling. So I think that if you're just like trying to do weird, cutting edge stuff, Ableton, it, it really does still have the advantage. So when you decide to record, let's say if you're working with audio. You have an Ableton song, but you need to, you know, record multiple takes on something and you decide to use Logic. How do you merge those two? Is there a way or do you just export the audio and then put it in or do you so um, what I used to do actually uh, a lot more was use Rewire. Um, and that's, I've always enjoyed things in Ableton, like ways that you edit that Logic doesn't have. So especially when I used to do remixes, I would do the main track in Logic and then I would hook Ableton in as the Rewire slave, so they say, and um, it would just sync to Logic and I could just run all the Ableton stuff. However, that also takes extra CPU and <laughs> my production computer is also already kind of choking sometimes at the things that I do. So now, usually what I just do is very simple. I'll just bounce a mix down of whatever I'm working on and just bring it into Logic and do the vocal takes and then pull them back out. Okay. Interesting. Uh, a few other questions about like the technology side of things. Just, I feel like this is a masterclass for anybody watching who <laughs> likes making music. Like I'm going to try and pull out a little bit of tips and tricks and I know you have a, a Discord channel, which you are on for free. So if anybody watching is interested in that, first of all, how could they get in touch with you? How would they reach out on Discord? Oh, it's so easy. So um, I run a Discord, which started out as the official companion to the to the Reddit, the subreddit for EDM production slash EDM production, which is quite a massive community. Uh, it's got some great moderators, but there's only a few of them and there's 330,000 subscribers. So it was a little bit like the Wild West. And a few years ago, um, they wanted to kind of develop an official Discord. And through a series of events, I got the keys and kind of have just built it into its own thing. And recently, I'm really excited because we're starting to reintegrate with the Reddit. We're more connected. We're planning events together. But for a long time, we've kind of just built our own sort of offshoot of the community. And pretty easy. It's a public server. So you can actually just get in with discord.gg slash EDMP. Like very, 
very easy link and that will, if you don't have the app, it'll ask you to download the app because it's a little bit nicer than using it in the browser. And pretty much, you know, you get into the server, you tell the bot which DAW you use, it gives you a role tag and you're in. You can talk about production, music theory, hardware. We have a self-care channel where we talk about cooking and fitness. Uh, we have sample trading, we have feedback, and we have kind of semi-regular competitions and challenges and events as well, sometimes with prizes. So uh, basically we have this mom and dad set up. I'm, I'm, I'm the rave mom and my friend, this awesome, awesome guy called Admiral Bumblebee. He has a website, admiralbumblebee.com. He's just one of the foremost experts of all the really technical stuff that you, like for instance, if you wanted to say, hey, I wanna know how many extra seconds of plugin delay compensation does Reaper have over Studio One, he will, know the answer to that in his brain so he's one of those people and he's kind of the he's also like the grumpy dad and i'm i'm the loving mom and we have this very very funny uh totally platonic dynamic of just kind of holding up the server and the, you know the artsy side and the technical side um and we're pretty much always there and then there's a great mod team and, and rest of admin team from all over the world of all ages and different styles and a user and base that's global as well that's awesome. And so if somebody were to enter there and let's say they were kind of younger to the game or, or, or new to the product production tools and had questions, is that an appropriate place to oh, ask yeah. questions? Oh yeah, that's pretty much what it's all about. And and it's, it's to be honest, we kind of have this reputation as this, like there, there's a lot of these advanced sort of servers for oh, producers that are more experienced and they, they make jokes sometimes about sending all the noobs to us. And we're just like, bring it on. We love them. Like yeah. we're, we're here for everybody. There's, there's definitely people who have been doing it for years and there's people who just started yesterday. I mean, I think I've been talking to some, some kid from India who doesn't even have a program yet. He's trying to find out which one he wants to get and what are the pros and cons so i mean you can even come there as a non-producer and just talk about music with us we are super welcoming to everybody that's amazing and and that's such a, a useful needed resource because there's so many times when you're making something you're like oh how did that one artist make that one sound that sounded like this and what could i do to achieve something similar or how do i i want i know what i want it to sound like how do i get there um mm -hmm. And I think so many tips and tricks, uh, you know, everybody started sometime, you know, somebody's uh, just starting out today and they're going to be the next expert uh, someday down the road. So that's yeah, an amazing I mean, the, resource. This technology kind of levels the playing field in that a lot of stuff isn't in the manual. It's just stuff that you discover accidentally, you know, like even the creators of a program may not realize that they could use it a certain way. So honestly, from being there, I have learned a lot totally. from people who don't know anything because they've just intuitively discovered something that I would have never thought of. Totally. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, a few of your favorite VSTs or plugins. Well, Serum is kind of like the, 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 everybody loves Serum. And I mean, there's good reason. It's, it's sort of the one synth that does it all. It's super easy to use. I've taught people how to use it in like six or seven minutes flat. Um, Gladiator, as I mentioned before, it's just a really innovative, weird technology that people still haven't used much since so I think that it creates some really unique textured sounds um, the plugin that's like the newest plugin that I'm loving right now is portal by output and that's a granular effect it's really it's really just quite complex and creates again I'm a big texture person so I'm always looking for ways to create more interesting layers and noises and just what you'd call the little polish bits 
you know, and I think that that's something when you're experienced, that's, that's kind of where you look because we know how to make the basic sounds. We know how to put a drum beat together, but how do you get that extra, like uh, somebody the other day called it the 10th listen stuff like stuff that you don't notice right away. So Portal has been really, really great um, for that. And I've also been exploring similar but different effects. Uh, there's one called Remnant and one called Tantrum. They're very small companies, but they're just like granular delays and distortions and just very interesting, very visually pleasing as well. And that's something that's nice. I mean, when I started, we didn't have these nice interfaces. Everything was just complicated and annoying looking. And now <laughs> you have these beautiful like visual interfaces. And I, I'm really excited about that because I think it gives more sort of intuitive artistic people a better connection with the technology. It's much more approachable than trying to draw lines, to connect things, and yeah, or just like just type put numbers in. and yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so, do you use vocoder? And if so, what are your? Uh, you know, I know that the recently discovered uh, manipulator by Polyverse and Isotope. Um, yeah. All, uh, vocal synth. Do you use any of those? So the TC Helicon honestly has does so much stuff like that that up until recently I didn't explore a lot because especially if I'm performing the, the vocal synth is a, is a nightmare on the CPU. So I've heard that people use it live. I'm not really sure what those people are doing because for me it would just destroy my computer. But I use it. I definitely use it in the studio sometimes for effects. Um, but yeah, I mean. It's interesting because for vocals, I've done all the weird effects and I almost find that sometimes the best effect is to just do 18 takes and stack them on top of each other, like really old fashioned kind of stuff. Because I think that's because I do so much crazy stuff when I'm producing my beats. It's like something needs to be normal. Something needs to center you. Something needs to bring you into the, the, the core of the track. So if there's too many crazy things happening at once, then you know, it can be a little bit much. Um, that being said, um, my studio partner and I have been exploring some weird stuff just to try new stuff and things like um, recording myself singing a bunch of notes and then tuning them all back to one single note so that you still have like my voice oh, kind of going up and up and down, but it's one note and then replaying that into a sampler so that I can play a bunch of notes, putting them in legato, like holding them so that so that the, the voice just kind of does its thing as I'm changing notes within it, but I can control what those notes are and still have the weird swings. So we're kind of trying, like, I'm always trying weird things, but I know that like some of those plugins, I just try them and I'm like, okay, great. Well, this is a nice acapella track, but now I don't want to put anything else around it because there's so much going on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so real quick, uh, when you build a drum, uh, drum sounds, uh, what do you, how do you do it? Um, any tools that are kind of a go-to or, or that you'd recommend for somebody? Well, I mean, drums are one of those funny things where it's like, I think you either love making them or you don't. And because there, there's also this diminishing returns thing where I think it takes like sometimes a long time to make really good drums. And I know people who are amazing at it. I don't know that I'm one of those people because I'm, in my view, there's so many other cool like melodies and basses and stuff that's more of a personality that usually when I'm making drums now, I might make something basic and then layer it. And I just have so many well-recorded, so many great drum samples that that is the one aspect of production that I will default to samples more because I play everything in live anyways. So there's always, 
there's always a very distinct, I feel like identity where like, even if I'm using samples, it's a live groove that I've played in and there's like some percussion and Foley that I've made layered into it. So sitting around making kicks and snares, I will confess is not my favorite thing. And it is something that I teach and it's something okay. that I can do. But um, if somebody is, is definitely interested and they want to learn, one of the best tools I found for learning is the drum designer pack for Ableton. And that is like, it's, you can download it. I think it's free if you have the suite and essentially it's these preset it so that have a bunch of things loaded in and you can kind of learn and reverse engineer from that. So you can be like, oh, I need a snare. You load a snare, you actually get an operator synth with a couple of effects on it. And you can go in and be like, oh, I see. That's how they diffuse the harmonics. That's how they did that. Because especially snare drums are so hard to make. Kicks and hi-hats are pretty easy, but snare drums, and it's because it just, if you think about what they are, they are just all diffused harmonics. All, nothing is really in pitch. And at the same time, there's still a core to it. So um, when I teach making a snare, it's always probably like the, the worst part of the course mood wise. It's, it's where I see the students just be like, <laughs> like, yeah, I believe it. So, and again, I mean, like I said, I, I know people who are so great at just making amazing drums from scratch. And I kind of go, yeah, that's great. And half the time I'm like, this is great. It sounds just like a kick I already have that I could have just used an hour ago. So yeah, yeah. don't shoot so, me drum lovers, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's a place for everybody. So, so what gets you very excited? I want to talk about bass next, uh, but is there any particular element of creation that like you really get thrilled about? Is it since? Yeah, it? definitely. I mean, it's I used to bass used to be the most important part to me, and I think that is entirely because of stylistically. You know, one of the things that I started getting known for when I first was into production was glitch hop, and glitch hop was at the time it didn't ha like now. I feel like it means something that I don't entirely love, but at the time it was just this catch-all reference for weird cutting edge kind of LA based electronic music. And even a lot of the stuff now we'd call like LA beat or left field would have been called glitch hop then. And when I was making that, it was just the thing to make like 50 different bases and make this, the whole song was based around this changing wobbling bass line. It's, it's kind of like a, the tipper approach or whatnot. So that used to be my prime excitement. That used to be like all I did all day was make bass sounds. And I think now we're kind of in this era where the bass has returned to just being a more simple underscore and melodies and percussion are a bit more in the front. You know, even with a lot of modern trap stuff, if you think of drums in 808, all the cutting edge hybrid stuff usually has like weird percussion or strange synths on top that is more the definition and everyone's using the same distorted kind of 808 thing. So just kind of modernizing my techniques, I spend a little bit more time now on pads and a tonal sort of synth or percussion. So I guess I do make my own drums, but they're maybe not exactly drums, but they may be taking the place of some of the drums. Mm -hmm. You know, I might record, I do record a lot of Foley. I go out with field recorder and I, you know, bang things and destroy things mildly and sometimes get eyebrows raised at me. You know, I don't vandalize anyone else's property. It's all good. Um, <laughs> and then usually I'll take that and resample it and process it and turn it into some kind of thing that I can use. Uh, one of my tracks uh, on previous albums is called Sideways View. It's actually got a sort of lead percussion solo and it's just me like banging pans and pots around in my kitchen sink. It's just boom, 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 boom. It's just, <laughs> usually when I play it live, I'm like, this is what happens when you make me do the dishes. <laughs> like yeah. get angry. So yeah, I mean, I, I get really excited about found sound um, and I get excited about synths. And with found sound, uh, something I learned working in film 
was uh, everything has a rhythm, whether it's conscious or not. People speak, you know, conversationally, we're talking, we have rhythms, we have kind of internal tempos that we're following. And even just natural things, like there's always a place where you can fit a natural sound and have it kind of just slide into place. So sometimes I love just going around and loosely dragging objects or throwing them and just putting them into a track and letting that actually dictate how we build the beat or the structure around it. So that's, that's always a really exciting part for me. Very interesting. Uh, so when you're teaching or working with other people that are uh, upcoming, we'll say, what are the most common mistakes that you see? Um, okay, well, one of them, um, even just a segue from what I was just talking about, is being a little bit too boring with your percussion. A lot of people, they take percussion and structure very literally. They hear something in their head and they do it. But I think what people don't realize is you know, there's a concept in jazz and other styles of music, ghost notes, right? The notes mm -hmm. that are, are almost not there. And so one of the things I have to teach people a lot is, hey, like you may not consciously hear this, but there is something there. And the biggest issue, and I, I mean, I still like more experienced producers I know struggle with this all the time is how to create spaciousness and how to also not have things feel empty, right? You don't want to overload, you don't want to overdo, and you also don't want to just leave these giant holes in your production. So I think the balance of movement and texture is the hardest thing to get. And that's the, that's the other thing is, you know, when people start making tracks, they literally will just like glue loops together and they're not really thinking about how to get from one part to the next or how to create tension. And, you know, a song is a story in a, in a nonverbal language. And sometimes there's lyrics, but you know, like, so you have to figure out how to get people from the intro to the build into the climax and just in a musical form. So I think tension and release is really, really tough. And, you know, there's the white noise riser is a classic way to do it, but there's so many ways to do it. And I think coming up with those ways is always a challenge for people who are new and they haven't really thought about like, well, I thought about the main lead, but like, how does it get from A to B? And like, mm. you know, how do I gracefully get it there? And, and why does it sound so empty? I was trying not to crowd it, but how do I, how do I put something else in there without it taking over? Yeah. And when, when you're producing or, or helping somebody else, a student, uh, formulate the structure of the song, what advice would you give uh, as far as make sure that it gets somewhere, but that it's not just all over the place and there is no structure? Well, I think the key is is just a very classic sort of like, you have to learn the rules to break them. And again, it's like, I hated theory, but because I learned some theory and it's still somewhere deep in my head, like I know how to make a chord progression that works. So I think that, um, people who struggle with arrangement and they also usually will be like, Oh, I don't want to copy anyone. And so when I tell them, Hey, bring a track that you like into your DAW and look at the structure and copy it. They're really afraid of that. But in reality, like you're probably not going to copy that person's track. You might just get a good idea of like what they did with flowing the energy that made you like it. So I usually recommend just being like, okay, find five tracks where you don't just love the overall sound. You love like every minute of it. And like, you can't stop listening to it all the way through and try and figure out why that is. Bring it in. Maybe, oh, maybe it goes into this breakdown in this really unexpected place. And then when it comes back, it's not even a drop. Maybe it's just like a little gradual thing. Work with that, you know, express that in your own piece. So I definitely think that um, people get afraid that if they listen to too many other people's music or styles or use it as reference, that they will become derivative. But I think if you're afraid of that, it's probably because you still haven't found your own sound. And if you haven't found your own sound, you don't even need to worry yet about that. You need to just mess it down and have fun and give your pain, so to speak.
about your personal creative process. You want to make a new song today. What are you going to start with? Oh, it, it, I kind of have a lot of different directions and it depends with, am I starting with a melody that I've heard in my head? So sometimes that happens. Unfortunately, it usually happens while I'm driving. I don't know why, but I've heard that this is a common thing. So I've got a lot of like half-baked voice memos, stuff that I would never show to anybody. That, that would be straight blackmail if anyone got a hold of my phone, <laughs> um, humming dubstep and stuff like that. But if I have that idea, you know, obviously I'll, I'll start from that. And usually what I'll do is play it on the keyboard, again, often reverting, not just to the piano to play it, but sometimes I'll even use a piano sound because I think I'm just, it's just so familiar and it's comfortable. And um, for me, it's all about like hit the ground running because one of the be best ways to sort of diffuse yourself and to, to be not wanting to make music is to like just get stuck in setting up. And so I have a couple different templates, you know, a couple different drum kits and things that I've made from my own stuff that are just kind of ready to go. And so if I, if I don't have a really strong idea, but I want to keep motivated, I'll just quickly throw throw in a drum kit that I've made and start jamming with it and just get a really good beat, you know? And again, just, just trying to get an idea going as fast as possible. And once I do that, it just becomes a very, like, I don't know, I think people watching me probably get a little, like, schizo feeling because my trick is to just jump around all the time. And it's actually because I have... I have this like attention focus thing where I only focus really well if I'm doing a lot of things at the same time. <laughs> so in order to actually focus and get things done on music, I have to work on different sections of it. If I just try and be like, oh, I'm going to work on the drums for three hours, I will be like zoning out, looking at cat pictures, like whatever, like it's not going to work. So I kind of just, um, it's almost like a doing rounds, um, like circuit training and exercise, you know, I'll be like, all right, work on the drums, jam, 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 jam. Oh, my attention's starting to split. Now I'm going to work on the bass for a while. Da, 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 da. Oh, now let's do the keywords. Now back to the drums. And I think the upside of that is like, if you're the type of person like me that can handle it, then it's actually really good for your ears because you don't get stuck. Like it's in the same way that like they used to have screensavers to not burn out the monitors. Like if you just listen to the same loop for hours, your, your hearing starts to change. So I think, you know, for me, it's really important to just Wow, that's a great analogy. Circulating. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I've, I've had that where you just, you work on a song for too long and especially yeah. like when there's vocals and they're yours and you know the lyrics, you have no perception after a while over whether they're the right level, whether they're intelligible, anything. Like you just lose that so fast. So I just, I just keep circulating and, you know, sometimes I'll even work on a couple of different tracks in a day. It just depends. I really try to follow my, my inner motivation because what I've learned now is like, you can get in the habit of working and you can work with your lack of motivation, but you can't like force the creativity. So if I'm really just like not cooperating with myself, I'll keep changing it up. And if I'm getting nowhere, I'll like organize my samples or just go into like, you know, back burner errand mode. But I try to just keep moving. And, and I think that above all keeps me motivated. It's just like, you know what? Like you're not always going to make a hit track, but hey, maybe you weren't inspired on a song. So you went and learned this new synth today and now you got a whole new tool in your arsenal. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so how do you organize your samples? I want to just, because I feel like you would have some very precision organization yeah. for your samples. It's gotten better. So what happened is, is I was bad at the beginning and the curse of that is that at a certain point you don't want to move things because you have old projects that are going to break and you're going to have oh, to relocate yeah. them. So I think my, my older system and my newer system, the difference is very apparent. And one of the things that I've really started doing more than organizing my samples, which I think more people think about now, is organizing my plugins. And most DAWs, like you don't, 
necessarily think of it off the bat, but they have a way for you to rearrange things so that they're more at your fingertips. And I think this is important, especially when you start to get more plugins, because you know, they, they say that you can only remember like a hundred people at a time. That's why like Facebook is kind of ridiculous. I feel like it's the same way with, with plugins or with sound design. Like, it's not that I don't love all my reverbs. It's that like, I don't always think of all 12 of my reverbs at once. So sometimes if I need a reverb, I just keep going to the same one because that's the one that's in my brain. Available, yeah. Yeah, so um, for example, in, in Logic, you can go into the plugin manager and you can actually create your own lists, your own system. And then instead of just going into like the VST menu or the audio unit menu, which is like by manufacturer. So it's like, you have to remember who made the plugin. <laughs> then yeah. it's like, forget it. I'm just using that reverb. So ever since I did that, I'm just so much more innovative because I just go to the reverb menu and then I look at all of them at once. And then with Ableton, um, they introduced in version 10 a favorites collection, which allows you to kind of mark your plugins and then you can just click on the different colors at the top of the screen. But even beyond that, a couple of my friends invented this script that you can run over top of Ableton called the Live Enhancement Suite. And it's free. And essentially, it's just literally a text script that allows you to create your own custom menus. And just by double right-clicking them over my Ableton session, I get these completely custom menus of plugins. Like, I have a distortion menu that opens into nice and nasty and then goes into different types of distortion. And it, I mean, maybe it's silly, but my workflow has just gotten lightning fast because instead of like, oh, I need a reverb, let me go and click on plugins and let me go down and look down for the reverbs. It's just like double right-click, reverbs, blah, 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 gone. Like, it's just very, very quick. And I think that, again, workflow is so important and kind of underrated because if it takes you too long to do anything, you're going to lose interest in it no matter what it is. Absolutely. Well, that's that's really interesting. Uh, I definitely learned some new new techniques there, so appreciate you sharing that. Um, hopefully other people will also uh, get the same benefit. Uh, so when do you know a song is done? You've been working on it. You've been jumping around. You've been moving around. You. You know, when is it done? <laughs> oh God, that is that is the million dollar question, right? They say that art is just like abandoned; it's never really completed. I think that I'm becoming more satisfied as I get more experience, not just because I'm better, but because I've learned that sometimes what people respond to is it's just so much simpler than you they were worrying about. Like you're sitting there because you've been working on your track, going, "Oh, I need another fill, and everything needs to be so original, and it needs to do that." And the reality is, especially if you're playing on a dance floor. 80% of that people don't even notice. They are looking for the groove. They are looking for the underlying, just like the little hook, whether it's a tiny percussion thing. So for me, it has to have that hook to it. And again, like there's there's been times where I've made a track and I've worked on it for weeks and then I take a day away from it and I completely forget what it sounds like. And that's a way of me being like, yeah, that needs a lot of work. And conversely, there's stuff where um, a song I started, for example, I haven't had a lot of time to work on it. So I kind of used a lot of shortcuts. I used a lot of sounds I'd already made that weren't necessarily the ones I wanted to use. And I threw the thing together and I did some one take vocals with a lot of noise. The whole thing is crappy and it just keeps popping into my head. Like every, you know, and maybe I don't necessarily know that it's finished, but for, to me, it's like the idea is there. The idea is finished and now it's just polish time. And once once I feel like that hook is there, then it's just a couple of like, you know, little changes here and there, final mix downs, and then it's good to go. Because if it's getting stuck in my head, if I'm like craving something that I've spent this much time on and should be sick of um, and have taken time away from, that's telling me that it's like worth it, you know? Nice. And and tell me about your mastering techniques. What do you do? Yeah. Um, 
So I don't do a lot because I sort of feel like most of the time if I'm doing something for commercial release, I actually really want someone else to touch it because just like having a book editor or something, like it's good to have a second opinion. Not yeah. just that, but a lot of mastering engineers, they have this like hardcore equipment that I don't have. They have like really nice analog boards and saturators. And so, yeah, I mean, a lot of the time I've, I've worked with one or two engineers who really like understand me and understand my music. And we actually have very close relationships because I've had really bad experiences with just sending it off to like generic engineers or engineers that do bass music. And because, you know, I like to think that like I make the bass music, but I also have this like delicate songwriter thing. And I don't really want you to just squish my track down. If I'm doing it myself, which I do a lot when I have to play something out at a show, it's usually very simple. And one of the things that I learned from my mentors was a good mix should only just need to be like loudness even to be mastered. Like you should not be putting all this crazy stuff on it unless it, the mix is not that good and you're trying to like do these gymnastics to fix it. Like that's not a good mix. So. Generally, I just try and really get the mix as good as possible and then just do a very simple limiter. Um, I like the um, ozone maximizer is kind of a nice one. And then maybe a little bit, a little bit of EQ. And that's, that's kind of it. And I, I feel like if I have to use more than that, then I probably need to work on the mix, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so when are you most productive? Do you work in the morning? You pull an all-nighter? I am. I am the only person I know that's like this, and I, I maybe it's just because like we don't make a statement about it. But you know, people are like, "I'm a night owl," or "I'm a morning person." I am neither. I am a middle of the day. You know, maybe I'm basic. I don't know, but I would say that like 12 noon to like 10 p.m. is is my productive zone. You know, and. Who knows why? Uh, part of it, I think, is I do have a thyroid condition, which I have to take medication for. And so that actually has a huge effect on my energy levels. And I could probably bet you that if I were to just suddenly start taking it at night, I could get the same cycle going after a while. So I do think a lot of it does have to do with this like synthetic metabolic structure that I'm on. But I also think that I do like the daylight. I do love nature. I love just like kind of it's, it's weird. Some people like to work at night because they say the world's asleep and it, they feel less disturbed and they have more space. I like to be alone a lot, but I also like to feel like the world is happening around me. And in, in some weird sense, when it's late at night and it's too quiet, I kind of just want to lie down and be quiet too. Um, whereas when life is going on and the sun is out and, you know, like right now I, I have a really nice view of the water. It just gets me all ready to work and to do stuff and gets excited. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a middle of the day person for sure. Nice. Uh, so this is um, kind of an analogy question, but if you were to reflect on yourself and your own energy, uh, are you like a deciduous tree or a coniferous tree? So like, do you lose your leaves or, or are you kind of evergreen all year round? Like Ooh, energetically. That is that is an interesting question. And I feel like if, if you have a category of a tree that has fruit, <laughs> okay, that's maybe where I want to be. You bear fruit. Yeah. But, but one time a year or uh, exactly. you know, one well, season. Yeah. And then the rest of the year, just, just go through changing things. I mean, I love to change all the time. And I think I, I think of fruit because I also like to do things that make other people happy and, and, and receive joy. So I, I like to fruit <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I like I like for people to enjoy in a, in a different way and not just look upon what I'm doing, you know, but to actually experience it and participate in it. 
Okay. And, but along those lines, do you find yourself more productive in the summertime or wintertime? Um, e, that's a good question. So different ways. I mean, in the summer, and this is something that didn't happen till I was actually quite late on in my life, but I suddenly realized that I needed to be outside and I needed to physically move my body. I think I just spent a certain number of years at the computer. And when I was in, in Vancouver, my studio was an old garage and we boarded up the windows for sound, but it also just became this bunker where like I could go in and not know if it were day or night. So now when it's summer, uh, usually I'm, I'm a little less studio productive because I'm going outside. And, and when I'm at home in Denver, I have a garden, which, you know, I grow my own vegetables and I, I, I really try to integrate with my physical environment. And that's just as a human on the quest for balance as somebody who spends a lot of time in front of a screen. Um, and then in the winter, you know, when I can't do a lot else, I will buckle down and get work done. But I think that the pandemic has changed that because now I'm just sort of inside most of the time. So I'm, I'm kind of just being productive when it's sunny out. And that feels nice too. Um, and appreciating the outside time and just completely divorcing that from production at all. Just, just getting out of the house. So yeah, I think that if I, if I were to choose, I feel like the fall is, is a good medium where it's like, it feels like people go back to school, people go back to work. Like, and that usually used to be the time where I would start touring again and getting really like involved in that. And that would give me energy. So it's hard to say, like, I think that I'm very responsive to my external environment for sure. So whatever's going on is, is going to be something that inspires me or deflates me. Fair enough. Well, let's dive into your most recent EP, Unleashed. I believe that's the most recent, unless you've snuck anything out in the last 24 hours or something. No, not yet. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, the first track, uh, Duality, um, I feel like there's, there, well, there's a duality there. Uh, you know, uh, there's like a classical influence and it's more melodic and gentle, but then there is a heavier, grimy beat that comes in. I wonder how you approach creating like contrast in songs. Oh man, Ed, that's, that's like really the basis of everything I do. You know, I think my whole life, like I've been a contrast. I've always been like the person who did things that nobody expected them to do. You know, I was like the only girl in, in my, most of my audio production classes and whatnot. So, and musically, like I've always liked classical, but I also like metal and like it comes all over the place. So for me, I just... A lot of it is definitely in the sound design. And when I teach sound design, I try to teach people to connect intuitive and emotional words and not just technical words to that. So, you know, for instance, I say, oh, FM synthesis are cold and metallic and icy. And like, these are the kinds of sounds that you're making. So when I'm creating an emotion, 
I'm all, I, I feel like I'm such a complex ball of contradictions that I will bring in, like I'll always bring in some heavy, grimy, distorted sounds and I'll always bring in some angelic classical sounds because that's just like who I am as a human. Like it comes, it's hard for me to stay on one side of it. And this is actually, it's not, a. it, it sounds like a great thing. And it's something that like artists will say, but in the music industry, in the label world, which has gotten narrower and narrower, it is a curse. And, you know, I've just in the last two days uh, submitted this one track, which is, I thought was really cool. It was kind of like synth wave pop intros and breakdowns and then really, really hard drop. And nobody wants to take it because people either like the drop, the drop goes with their banging dubstep label, or the intro goes with whatever else they're doing. And they're just, they can't even like mentally accept the contradiction in that tune. So it, it bites me in the ass a lot. Um, and then the same person, I then was like, okay, you said it's too heavy for you. Here's a chill tune. Yeah, that one's too chill for me. Sorry, I need something heavier. So I think that it's it's not very encouraged in this in this modern landscape because people are so narrow about what their definition is. Like this label is about only like mid-range serum bass from 2012 combined with, you know, it's just like very very rigid and it's disappointing to me because part of the reason I got into this was just the endless possibility of making sounds and like creating things that didn't exist. So uh, I, for me, it's just natural, but you know, I really struggled to even get this last album out. And that's, that's honestly why I went back to Moody Music and Moody is one of my first labels. And I haven't, I've, you know, I've gone far from them just because I wanted to explore. I wanted to connect with as many collectives and labels as I could, but I went back to them because they are one of the only labels that has ever accepted me for who I am. And, and just, you know, obviously I don't expect everyone to like my music at all, but they have never given me that kind of narrow definition and perspective and acceptance. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I left drum and bass. I did drum and bass for the first 12 years of being a musician. And I got to this point where I was making songs and people were like, you need to put a name and break on it. I'm like, I'm sorry, did you just tell me I need to put the most sampled music break in history over top of my original music for you to accept it? Like, no, sorry, fuck that. So um, I, it disappoints me. And again, I just, I'm hoping that as people spend more time at home, they, they might just open themselves up to weirder things. And now that artists don't necessarily need labels and, and tours in the same way, then maybe some new genres will be fusing, but I don't know, that's what I'm all about. And I, I can only just encourage anybody listening to just say, do weird stuff because we need it. We need things to change. Well, I feel like that contrast really adds more than it would detract from anything. Like it, it creates a uh, space for the other. Like you don't know darkness without the light. You don't know light without the darkness. And I feel like those contrasting ideas and sounds and feelings are additive. So you said something interesting. Earlier, you said that you're an independent musician, and then you just said that you went back to Moody. And I wonder kind of how you draw those lines and why you find it valuable to work with record labels and how to keep your independence while working with record labels. Right. So I think um, on the, you know, electronic dance music underground scene, it, it is a little bit different. Like, I don't know too many people that sign exclusively to a label. Like most of these labels, yeah. they work on singles or EPs or just kind of one-off non-exclusive basis. So I've always remained independent. But I think for me, it's about community again and connection where it's like, if I go to a new label um, that's, that I've never worked with, I'm opening myself up to a new audience, a new demographic, you know, different taste makers, because everybody has their own little group. And I, I found that super valuable. 
valuable. So for me, it's kind of like a twofold thing of going, hey, I want to join a new community and I want to connect with some new fans. And also like, there's also the marketing side of it, which is something I've always kind of hated. Like I don't like promoting myself and I, and I'm always just like, I hate talking about my own music. So it's always been nice to have a label that's like sending out those promos for me and just doing that for me. So it's always been a collective community and just a word of mouth sort of thing that I'm trying to connect with when I work with the label. Absolutely. All right. So is there anything else that you wanted to touch on as far as uh, unleashed uh, your, your new work, what you're working on currently? Yeah, that um, listeners should be aware of. Yeah, so um, there's a pretty massive project, which probably a lot of people have heard about at this point because there's hundreds of musicians involved. But I am about to uh, release an album with it. It's a project called The Outlaw Ocean, and it's actually based on a book that was written by a New York Times National Geographic journalist named Ian Urbina. He's a pretty amazing guy. Uh, he tends to focus on environmental issues and workers' rights. And he just went on the ocean for the last five years investigating everything that happens there, like sea slavery, pollution, uh, all, all stuff that happens at sea. And while he was at sea, he had a really awesome videographer with him, and they also collected field recordings. At the end of this, he came back and said, you know, I, th- I want to do something different. I want to release this book, and I also would want to collaborate with a bunch of musicians and give them this, this footage and these samples and have them make albums inspired by the different chapters in the book. So when he, you know, he also emailed, I think everybody personally, every, every musician, the guy is, uh, he kind of like just baffles me because he's so cool. You know, he's a journalist covering important issues. He's a really good writer and he's a little bit older than me, like probably could be my dad and has the most like cutting edge music taste. And I'm not talking about me, like just, just the list of musicians that have been involved in the project. Like some of them are so niche, like tiny SoundCloud artists with cult followings. And he just handpicked them all. So I'm really honored to be a part of it, not just because of just the immense scope and importance of the project, but because of the company that I'm keeping of being involved. You know, um, the most recently Starkey put out an album and then another artist named Chromonichi, part of a future collective who I really love. And again, just a really wide diversity. So my EP um, is actually based on a chapter called The Next Frontier. And that's specifically about the ongoing battle to preserve the coral reefs against sort of offshore oil drilling and all the corporations. And to me, it really just sort of uh, was this heroes and villains kind of story. And I've always wanted to do an interpretive story. Since I was a kid, um, I don't know if you ever heard like the old record, Peter and the Wolf. It's like, uh, it's a classical music piece and it's basically like a classical symphony for kids where you have different instruments personifying the animals. So like, you know, the oboe is like a, an animal and like the wolf is played by this other thing. And I always just thought like, what if I could just literally tell this kind of story, you know, and not just be so abstract about it, but Hey, like I'm, I'm actually representing the reefs and I'm representing the oil drilling. So I took all the samples and repurposed them and resynthesized them and, um, really inspiring and made an EP and that's going to come out on October 9th. And they actually do this thing where they're releasing giant piles of albums at once. So I think there's a lot of probably albums going to be dropping at the same time, but I would encourage people already now, just it's a fascinating project and there's, there's video material. Like I said, there's the book and there's like 50, 60 albums out already with it. So it's quite an extensive, deep and really beautiful project. It's worth looking at. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that. And 
a lot of people will be listening in the future, so it's possible it's already out. So uh, go ahead and check that out. So for the listeners who want to learn more about you, follow you on social media, check out your Discord channel. We've already touched on that one. But uh, where where's the best place that somebody could reach out or follow you or get the latest news about your albums or tour? Um, yeah, so Alicia.com, uh, my website, is generally, it's a good aggregator. It's got kind of all my socials embedded in the page. So ill-esha.com. Uh, but Discord is definitely the best place. Like you can you can literally talk to me almost in real time. I'm almost always around and involved and participating in competitions. So those are probably like the two easiest ways to connect or follow up on what I'm doing. Um, yeah. Great. Was well, there anything else that you wanted to share uh, with the listener? Words, <laughs> wisdom, parting thoughts. Uh, I mean, really, I would say that uh, the main thing to anybody listening is being creative is is such a joy. And I think that it has been partially taken away from us by the glorification of professionals and celebrity. And by that, I mean, like back in the days of tribes, everybody used to sing. That's how we told our stories. That's how we connected. And now you see people going, oh, I'm not a singer. I don't sing. So I would encourage you, like, even if you're not a singer, not a producer, not a famous DJ, you don't have to be any of those things. Like, just have some fun. It's so accessible now. There are so many tools that you can just play around with. So if you have any interest in it, don't be shy, you know, just do it and feel free to link up with all these communities that are emerging of other people just doing it for the joy of it. You know, don't forget about the joy in life. Not everything has to be uh, competitive and commodified. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate all of the techniques and ideas and, and uh, strategies uh, sharing, being an open book, uh, just talking about everything. So thank you for your time and uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Frio Music Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, consider donating to our patron program. You can learn more about our patron program at friomusic.com forward slash support. Even $1 a month can help us pay the bills and create more quality content for you. If you enjoyed what you heard or gained any tiny nuggets of wisdom from the show, please leave a comment and rating on your preferred podcast platform. Please take a minute to rate the podcast now. Your ratings really do make a huge impact on search results and can help other people find the show and the music that we feature. If you really love the podcast and don't want to miss an episode, you can subscribe to be notified when new episodes are released by visiting freomusic.com forward slash P. Or if you really want to type it all out, freomusic.com forward slash podcast. That's F-R-E-I-O-M-U-S-I-C dot com forward slash P. If you know somebody who might enjoy the content of this podcast, please share it with them. Your contributions and support make this podcast possible. Until next time, stay tuned.